This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited this week to welcome Doug Rappaport and Jason Koenig, two partners at Aiken and both experts in the world of activism, M&A, governance, and litigation. Prior to Aiken, Jason was an M&A banker at Jefferies, and both Doug and Jason advise activists in pursuit of board seats, governance changes, value creation efforts, and they represented activist campaigns, existing M&A situations as well. They often work behind the scenes in a lot of the biggest campaigns, and Doug in particular is an expert in all things Delaware Court of Chancery, which we write about a lot here at The Deal, and I will turn to Doug the next time I'm reporting on an activist books and records request. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Great. So, okay, I want to start off with one of my favorite subjects, and that is the new 13D rules. I've been writing, I feel like, for over a decade about how some changes were coming, and I know you guys have some interesting observations. I argued that when they adopted the rules, they were a watered-down version of the original proposal, and uh, the rules require activist investors to disclose their positions within five business days versus the long-standing 10 calendar day window. So you guys advise a lot of activists. Let's just start with that part first. Maybe Doug or Jason, either one of you, will the faster time frame hurt activists? I can jump in first. So look, I think overall the new rules are going to create greater transparency in stock ownership, but I don't think the faster time frame will have a material impact on activists. I mean, as you alluded to, a lot of the shareholder activism occurs by investors that specifically stay below the 5%. And so they don't need to file a 13D. And, and so the faster time frame won't really affect them. And the investors that have no issue with going above 5%, it's true that they're going to have less time to accumulate their position at an unaffected share price. But I don't think this is really going to change their overall strategy. And maybe just one other point is, you know, you've, we've heard some commentators argue that this will have a chilling effect on takeover attempts as well, because would-be acquirers will be required to disclose their position earlier and you know, thereby giving the company an opportunity to react more quickly to any such attempt, et cetera. And some have also said it could lead to an increase in low threshold poison pills. But I mean, I don't really find either of these arguments compelling. I mean, the takeovers, a tender offer is not typically the preferred method for taking over a company due to execution risk. And the likelihood of management being opposed to the transactions. I don't think you're going to see an effect on activist driven MA as a result of this. And on poison pills, as Doug will tell you, courts and other commentators have been very critical of low threshold pills with the exception of NOL pills. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't anticipate much of an impact here either. Yeah. To follow up on what Jason just said, I think for the vast majority of campaigns out there, the change from 10 days to five days is probably going to have a limited effect. I think there is going to be a distinct minority of campaigns out there, particularly circumstances in which you have an activist who's looking to accumulate a sizable position, perhaps well in excess of 5%, perhaps even in excess of 10% before going public. And if you're dealing with a smaller cap company, a company with a limited float out there, this will put pressure on them to be more aggressive in the market during that five-day window. And if, in fact, it puts that pressure on them, that can have the effect of creating greater demand in the market and therefore pushing up the stock price. So I do think in that limited circumstance, there may be some impact there. But for a lot of our clients, we've talked to activists out there. They've suggested that they think this, this impact is going to be limited and probably isolated to, you know, sort of a handful of campaigns as opposed to the majority of campaigns. 
That's interesting. And Doug, you also had an interesting observation when we chatted about this before, the, about the amended 13D. So the amended 13D must now come out two, within two business days of, I guess, material change or 1% change, something like that. But it also, previously, those amended 13Ds had to come out promptly, which you had this interesting point that this could affect settlements and disclosure of settlements because those are often disclosed in amended 13Ds. Can you explain? Sure. There is, you know, traditionally the promptly standard for amending 13Ds. In the context of an active campaign, I think the vast majority of activists out there would treat a two-day window as promptly. And on some circumstances, two days may even be too long, and it probably should be one day. So from the activist perspective, this may not change the game that much. However, in the context of settlements, issuers filing 8Ks, announcing settlements with activists, generally have had a broader window, have had a four-day window under the 8K rules. And this is going to put the onus on the issuer if, in fact, the issuer wants to speak first with respect to a settlement, which is ordinarily the case, it is certainly the case in the vast majority of circumstances, that the issuer is not going to have the luxury of four days anymore, because if nothing else, the activist is going to have to come out and announce the settlement in two days. Now, there's various play in the joints here, one being simply don't finalize your settlement until the issuer is ready to issue their 8K. So there will be some flexibility there and some play in the joints, but it does create a, there's a disjunctive effect here between the deadline that the issuer has to announce the settlement via an 8K and the deadline now that the activist has, which is a new hard two-day limitation. And of course, this will impact when the press releases come out. And I often look at the press release and don't feel comfortable writing an article until I see the 8K because I feel like a lot of the interesting details in these settlements are in those 8Ks. And you can really understand, you know, who nominated that director that got put on the board. Was it the activist? Was it the company? Was it the mutual pick? And in this one case that I came across recently, it was a fascinating detail in the AK, a lot of which was not included in the press release. And this was a settlement between D.E. Shaw, the activist, and this kind of defense contractor, L3 Harris. Now, in the settlement, it set up a four-person portfolio review panel. And the panel has, by my count, after a little bit of digging, three activist-backed directors, two that were put on as part of the settlement, and then one that was put on along you know, in 2016 with another activist, Jana Partners. But what was most interesting was that there was this charter in the settlement agreement that was included in the 8K. And uh, the way my reading of the charter is, is that the four-person board subcommittee that's kind of looking into the portfolio of the company, read looking into whether we L3 Harris should divest assets, this four-person subcommittee has the authority to hire financial and legal counsel, and the company and the rest of the board can't control how much they spend on these hiring of these advisors and you know with the work that they do. And so I guess I wanted to throw out that this, maybe Doug, you can start with this, and I don't know if Jason wanted to chime in. Is this kind of an unusual to have this detailed? I don't think I've seen this kind of detailed charter in an, disclosed in an 8K. I'm just wondering if, if these kind of structures where the subcommittee has this kind of carte blanche ability to hire financial legal counsels is common or is this unusual, just unusual that it's disclosed? Yeah, I think, look, I think there's certainly a give and take in the context of any settlement or resolution of an activist campaign as to how much detail is going to be disclosed, what's going to be disclosed, what is required to be disclosed under the securities laws. 
will be disclosed and what may be left for to deal with through governance and through board processes. I think in this circumstance, so it's not entirely unusual to when you have a special committee like this portfolio review committee that you described to have various rights and obligations and privileges that folks on that committee are going to have. So I think it's just simply a matter of negotiation and discussion between the issuer and the activist as to how much of this and how much detail should be disclosed with respect to perhaps a special committee charter and how much is required to be disclosed under the laws. So it appears that the balance struck here is a, is a balance in favor of fulsome disclosure. Frankly, under the securities laws, fulsome disclosure is ordinarily a safer way to go. So it's not entirely unusual, the structure here. I think the more fulsome disclosure perhaps is a little more fulsome than we often see, but it didn't strike me as being out of sync with what we've seen before on occasion. And Jason, I don't know if you have any additional perspectives on this. Yeah, I I agree with Doug. I mean, I think the structure is less unique as opposed to the disclosure and that level of detail. The strategic committees are common. And uh, as we know, activists often negotiate as part of their settlement agreements to get one or two or three directors on such committees, but I think the the level of disclosure here is perhaps what makes it a little bit more of an anomaly, but you always see some level of disclosure. I wanted to shift uh, gears a little bit into another one of my favorite activism subjects, and that is single issue proxy contests. And, you know, there was a lot of hype over the past, I don't know, year or so that there would be this explosion of these single issue or as some like to call it, special interest proxy contest with the advent of the universal proxy card. And for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the universal proxy card, this is kind of a new system set up by the Securities and Exchange Commission, essentially allowing institutional investors and other investors more flexibility to pick and choose incumbent and dissident directors in contests. And in terms of single issue proxy contests, this occurred prior to the advent of the universal proxy card. We saw Carl Icahn lose with his single-issue contest at McDonald's fairly overwhelmingly, and it was focused on animal welfare. And he pulled his similar contest at Kroger's. And after that, I was like, okay, well, we haven't seen any more single-issue contests until now. Something called the Strategic Organizing Center, a group of labor unions, has a new director contest at Starbucks, representing what I believe is the first real single-issue director contest, this one focuses on labor issues, in the universal proxy card era. You know, people thought they would be less expensive to do director contests because the company has to solicit all the investors and the activists can put their their distant director candidates on the company's proxy card. And so this is going to make it cheaper. And so I don't know, you guys, either one of you want to take the lead on this. Maybe Jason, you could start out. You know, what do you think about this Starbucks contest? Do you think the universal proxy card factored into the decision to launch it? And do you think that this is marks the beginning of this trend that I, you know, albeit it's mostly been the the company law advisors, lawyers who have been promulgating this idea that there's going to be this explosion of single issue contests that never showed up. I'm just wondering if this example you think will be a start of a trend. Look, short answer, no. I mean, I think the universal proxy card, as you noted, makes it more available and easier for activists or anyone else to pursue a single issue proxy contest. But I think McDonald's and Starbucks are really good examples how universal proxy card, they can help an activist raise awareness of certain social issues. But as you noted, you know, we saw in McDonald's, the question will be whether single issue proxy 
consciousness are actually going to be successful. So I think I would argue that generally speaking, this will be an uphill battle because ISS and Glass-Lewis and most institutional investors want to see directors that will be effective stewards of capital and are able to contribute to the oversight of the company in many different ways, not just a single issue. Mm-hmm. And those successful activists, as we know, are the ones that approach a board with a well-developed and detailed thesis. And this includes ideas about which specific director candidates they have in mind that can help achieve those theses. So invariably, these theses are going to be more multifaceted and they'll advocate for pulling multiple levers, not just focusing on a single issue. So I think you're right that the UPC creates more access, but I would argue that it's it's not a harbinger of, of a larger trend, I will say. Yeah. And just to pick on what Jason just said, I think we're still in the early innings with respect to the universal proxy card. So we'll have to see how this all shakes out. I would suspect that the universal proxy card helps facilitate these single issue campaigns. But I think also the rise in impact investing, what's often called ESG investing, more generally is one of the reasons we're seeing these sort of campaigns out there that are geared towards issues that are not traditionally perceived to be things to necessarily create immediate changes for shareholders with respect to stock value and otherwise. So I think you've got a confluence of factors here. Universal Proxy Card does help facilitate it, but I think it's more folks are now oriented towards less traditional factors that may be relevant with respect to board contests, particularly things impacting on environmental and social issues, more traditional impact investing type issues out there that are now more prevalent than they certainly have been in years past. The one thing I wanted to point out is that what I thought was interesting, and I suspect that maybe the people that are behind this director contest at Starbucks look towards before they decided to launch a contest, is that labor-themed children proposal at Starbucks won 52% of support of shares votes in March at Starbucks. And it was the only labor-themed shareholder proposal to pass this year. And, you know, this is a non-binding proposal. Meanwhile, you know, putting those directors on the board is very, very binding. So I guess you think that that support that they received from shareholders for this proposal in March, could those investors will support those dissident director candidates? I don't think you'll see a, you know, kind of a one-for-one translation of shareholders that supported the proposal. And I think that's just because, as I mentioned earlier, as you just said, it's a bind- it obviously doesn't get more binding than a shareholder or a director vote. And I think a lot more, a lot more factors go into a director vote than just a single issue. And I just say, just, just to follow up on that, that, look, at the end of the day, you know, when you look at the substantial investors in any company, we're often talking, and I think Starbucks is no exception, of large institutional investors, such as, you know, the Vanguards and BlackRocks of the world. So at the end of the day, they're going to make a thoughtful determination guided in, in part, perhaps by the proxy advisors and, and perhaps less so as to whether or not these single issue these single-issue candidates are actually going to be value-add. And at the end of the day, they owe fiduciary responsibility to their investors to make certain that they're doing what they deem to be responsible with respect to the proxy card decisions that they're making. So we don't want to lose sight at the end of the day. These folks have a responsibility, and more often than not, that responsibility is to generate alpha for their investors, and they're going to make decisions and be guided by that. Notwithstanding that they may have personal views that may 
be directed towards other priorities as well. I'll be very interested to see how ISS and Glass-Lewis issued their reports on this in light of kind of the perception that there may be too pro-ESG from some circles. And then I think that's a very valid point that they try to support directors that will help kind of holistically improve companies. So, okay. I wanted to bring one other subject up that possibly two. And Doug, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, I wanted to get your thoughts on Delaware and activism because I read a lot about Delaware court cases. I'm actually going up to Delaware in January unless this situation that I'm following is settled first to cover a court case. And I see a lot of these so-called 220 books and record requests from activists. For example, Elliott Management recently sought a books and records request at Crown Castle over a bylaw with an acting in concert provision that, and I kind of compared it, is reminiscent of one that was recently rejected in Delaware in the situation involving Williams Company. Uh, Though I noticed more recently that the company appeared to rescind that provision, uh, that acting in concert provision. So I thought that that was was interesting. Basically, I see a lot of these 220 requests, and I find that a lot of times they're canceled in my experience when you know, the thing that the activists are seeking is revealed or this, the companies and the activists settle. And I guess, Doug, maybe you could kind of talk about what are activists trying to seek out with these 220 requests of sure. records and how often do they actually get them? Because I feel like a lot of times it's settled and they, you know, it never gets to the stage where they, the decision is made in Delaware over whether they should get the books and records. Right. So look, a 220 demand is a tool in the activist toolbox. It is a means to both gather information and under some circumstances, exert leverage over the issuer, basically saying, look, we have a right as a shareholder to get under the hood here and to gather certain documents. There are often parameters set around what you can get and what you can't get. It's a common conversation in the face of a 220 demand, whether the documents available to a 220 demand or the books and records include electronic communication, such as email. Most often, that is not the case included within a 220, but there is a back and forth between an activist and an issuer under these circumstances. The one thing to bear in mind is in any time that there is an agreement to provide a shareholder with documents under 220, there is a standard practice to provide a confidentiality agreement that the parties enter an end to an NDA, and the demander, the demanding shareholder, in this case, the activist, cannot disclose those documents publicly is usually the the fence that is put around with respect to the use of the documents. So for an activist, it can be challenging because if you're looking to ultimately have a proxy contest and bring your case to the public, you may receive documents containing information that you, in one way or another, may not be able to use and may not be able to fully socialize with the other shareholders in the context of a proxy contest. So a 220 demand can be a useful weapon. It should be used in a disciplined fashion under proper circumstances, but there are certainly circumstances in which it's both appropriate and in which you can exert leverage over a board that can help facilitate a resolution between the issuer and the activist. You ever see situations where the court has granted the 220 request and the company gives documents and the activist says this is not what we were promised or what we are authorized to get and yeah. it's kind of back and forth where then the company gives up more documents oh. or less redacted documents or stuff like oh, that? Oh, yeah. All the time. There's always a give and take. There's always a give and take. 
And there's always the opportunity for the requester, in this case, the activist, to go to court. And Delaware actually has expedited proceedings with respect to 220 demand disputes. So there are special provisions under the Delaware court procedures to facilitate bringing these disputes to the court's attention and seeking resolution on an expedited basis. So there's always this give and take where the issuer may initially provide some materials. The activist may come back and say, we need additional materials. And if they end up at loggerheads, you can end up in a dispute with the court. So usually when you see these matters get into court, not always, but usually there's been some back and forth for weeks, even months between the activist and the issuer before they got there. And at some point they reached an impasse and usually it's the shareholder decided to bring it to court to have the impasse resolved one way or another. Fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Okay. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to just bring up one more topic. Maybe Jason, you could take the lead on this. And that is another one of my favorite subjects, which is corporate governance or the uh, directors on boards. You know, I often see companies with over-tenure, over-boarded directors who are in their 80s and uh, have close ties to the CEO. And, you know, a lot of these companies need uh, cybersecurity experts and, and they don't have them and maybe could be more diverse, the boards. And I, I feel like this is something I see an activist file a 13D on, on a company with just a boilerplate explanation in the filing. And then I immediately go look at the board and I say, oh, these are directors that are vulnerable. Talk a little bit about what makes a, a board vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, so a number of the factors you mentioned are, are, are red flags, and we regularly work with issuer clients and activist clients on identifying the red flags, but from the issuer side, how, how they can ensure their board checks as many of the boxes as possible on the skills and characteristic matrices that we hear people refer to. You know, this is an issue that ISS and Glass-Lewis are focused on, that activists are focused on. I mean, an activist wouldn't typically base an entire campaign around such deficiencies on a board, but where a board is weak in certain of these areas, as you alluded to, it gives an activist another avenue to criticize an issuer and to even draw a causal link between the fact that the board's lacking in certain of these areas and poor operational. Yeah, I feel like if there's two different companies that have very similar kind of operational, structural, you know, maybe they're mini conglomerates that are trading at a discount to their some of their parts. And one has a fairly new board with relevant experience and important characteristics. Another one has kind of a board where the directors have been there for a long time. You see lots of relationships between the board and the CEO. It's kind of a clubby atmosphere. I feel like they would definitely target the clubbier board. One factor to consider is that There are circumstances where an activist is out there and the issuer sees it and the issuer basically as a defensive maneuver goes through a board refresh. And one thing to bear in mind is that under some circumstances, the activist may back away from the campaign at that point. And that to some extent may be perceived as maybe not a complete victory for the activist, but at least the activist has effectuated some change, especially if you've seen a board that's a sleepy board that has been you know, sort of really not had a lot of turnover in a long time, that there is sometimes a means to to force the issuer to affect change, which may spare the activist the work of having to do so through a proxy contest or otherwise. And then, of course, there are other situations where the company changes the board facing an activist attack, and then the activist still continues to proceed. Uh, you know, I wrote recently about how but they proceed in a slightly different manner, I think, when the company has shaken up the board a little bit. For example, at Disney, we had a situation where Tryon 
was initially going to launch what I understand was a three-person director contest. And uh, Disney, hoping to preempt the strike or convince Nelson Peltz of trying to cancel it, they installed two new directors, including the CEO of Morgan Stanley. And they removed the director that was actually ousted from another company's board by, in my view, by a Carl Icahn campaign or contest there. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so then ultimately try and nominated two directors, including himself and an ex-CFO of Disney. So I feel like, you know, definitely is a strategy. And sometimes activists feel like it's just not enough. Yeah. So sometimes the issuer's efforts, perhaps made defensively or otherwise, are either insufficient, half-hearted, and on occasion, sometimes more of a pretense than actually affecting a change. And under those circumstances, the activists may feel it incumbent upon them to continue with the campaign, notwithstanding the fact that there's been some change at the board level or otherwise. We are out of time. This has been the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral, and I've been talking to Doug Rappaport and Jason Koenig of Aiken. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much, Thank Ron. you.